Well, good morning. Um, I just dropped all my notes, so we're going to see how this works out. I feel okay about it. Hopefully you do as well. just need those because those are important. Um, so uh, a lie that is repeated long enough and a lie that is repeat, repeated often enough and a lie that is repeated by people with the right credentials becomes a truth for many people. It doesn't actually become true. So a lie that gets repeated long enough and often enough and loud enough by people with the right credentials, it becomes a truth. We call this propaganda. Right? When you silence all other voices and you, and you twist and distort reality through lies that are often and long and, and loud enough. What's the Christian version of propaganda? False teaching. We repeat a lie long enough that people begin to move to it. We repeat a lie loud enough because we're right and we're better and look at us compared to those people. And we repeat it with the right credentials and you know what the right credentials are. You look really good. You have a smooth stage presence. You have the right level of toned down yet expensive designer t-shirts and jeans as you preach. Maybe you have a stool in the pulpit. Maybe you don't, that's up to you. But you have the right credentials and you say it with such passion that it becomes true for so many people. And it's propaganda. It is a, a lie designed to move you away from Jesus Christ Usually to the person doing the speaking. Usually to make much of the guy on stage. And Paul is going to have a head-on assault for that kind of teaching in the text today. So we're going to be in, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 4, um, and as we get into 1 Timothy chapter 4, we've just gone through chapter 3, which is kind of the, I would say, the, the pinnacle of 1 Timothy. Right? It's kind of the glue that everything else comes off of, and so you could think of 1 Timothy in a way of everything that came before chapter 3 is looking forward to chapter 3 as one of its resolutions, one of its solutions to the problem. And you could look at it as everything after chapter 3 is looking back to chapter 3 to measure itself against what chapter 3 is. And so over the past few weeks, we've talked a lot about leadership. There is a type of leadership that is essential if the church is going to be protected from false teachers weaving themselves into the midst. There is a type of leadership that is essential to have the kind of moral authority, the kind of spiritual authority, the kind of doctrinal authority that it is going to take to take people who are probably more magnetic at speaking. And they're probably more in touch and relevant and, and they strike at the egos of the people around them. And they don't have to be on TV, they can be sitting right here and they just do a better job of touching your own natural desires, spiritualizing them so that you can have all that you want plus Jesus at the same time. You can live how you want plus Jesus at the same time. 
You can find a way to be righteous and better than everyone else while not doing much more than just what you're already doing. And they're so good at weaving that together. And it takes a certain type of leader to protect people from those things. And so in chapter 3, we were introduced to the two offices that are in the church to protect, to hold the line. And there's overseers or elders or pastors, three words in the New Testament that mean the same thing, or the same office, refer to the same office. And elders are tasked to oversee the shepherding and doctrine of the church. They are tasked to oversee soul care and shepherding and, and, and spiritual formation and correction of people within the church. But they're also tasked with holding the word of God and defending the purity of the doctrine of the gospel. But not just defending it like we have right doctrine, we're good. No, we defend right doctrine because we want to teach and impart truth to the people of the church that forms them to be more like Jesus. So we protect the truth so that we have a truth to put into people's lives that draws them to Christ. And the overseer must be able to refute and shut down false teaching. They defend the church from false teaching coming up. And so we have elders who oversee shepherding and the purity of doctrine. The second office we have is the office of deacon. And deacon oversees the the service ministries of the church. And I forget how we worded the other one, but basically the logistical or, or tangible needs of the church. And so the deacons are tasked with serving the church and making sure that the practical needs of the church are met and making sure that, that uh, all the service ministries of the church happen. And both are essential, right? Because if you have awesome doctrine and you have guys with integrity up there and you, do, you defend the truth and you teach the truth, but you neglect the simple matters of stuff that's going on in the everyday life of people, when there's a need that needs to be met, when there's problems going on, when you neglect the service of people and the real stuff of life, it's an easy opportunity for somebody to grab hold, see they don't care about you anyways, let me meet this need, and then just follow me away from Jesus, and I'll take you there. Both become essential. And then chapter three ends with the theological pinnacle of the book. It's what you measure your teaching It's what you measure your lifestyle by. In the end of chapter 3, it says there is a lifestyle that belongs to the people of God. There's a lifestyle that is attached to being part of the family of God. See, we identify with God through faith in Jesus Christ. He becomes our father. We become his dearly loved children. And there's a lifestyle that begins to emerge in people's lives when God is their father. There's a lifestyle that begins to emerge in people's lives when they're, when they're connected to a family that they're responsible to care for and receive care from. There's a behavior that's proper for the household of God. There's a lifestyle that's proper for being part of God's family. But there's not just a lifestyle proper for being part of God's family, there is a truth that is central to being part of God's family. And that's how the uh, chapter three ends. It ends with this hymn fragment that magnifies Jesus. Jesus, God became flesh. Jesus lived a perfect life. Jesus died an ugly, brutal, awful, atoning death on the cross. Jesus did not stay dead, but was vindicated by resurrection so that all that he said and all that he promised is true. He lived, he died, he rose again. He has ascended into heaven, and now his name is magnified through the message of Jesus going to all the earth. And then there's people all over the earth 
that are believing that message. That is the core truth everything must be measured by. Does my lifestyle look like I belong to God? Not perfect, right? Growing and progressing. But, but do I have a lifestyle that says, yeah, this is what God's like and I commend him to you? And does the message I speak make much of Jesus Christ everywhere? Or does it kind of make much of Jesus but only as a means to make much of me in the process? That's the measurement. And that's going to be the measurement that leads us into chapter 4. We're going to check ourselves against the truth, Jesus magnified, Jesus central, Jesus lived, died, rose again as the message that we proclaim. And then the kind of lifestyle that flows out of believing that gospel. That's the measurement. Listen to it in chapter 4. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. If you put these things before the brothers, you're a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths, Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Now this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Let's pray. So, Father, in Jesus' name, I pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to understand. I pray that as we use words we're not used to using, and as we we talk about false teaching in a way we're not used to talking about it, or that it would that our hearts would be open to that, that we would see the gravity and the seriousness of being wrong when it comes to Jesus and the gravity and the seriousness of what it's like for teachers to pull away from Jesus and we'd be aware for our own hearts because we drift but we'd also be aware because there's people around us and they drift too and so I pray Father help us help us to hear well help us to understand well help us to identify Well, and then help us to be those like the Bereans who search the scripture to see if it's so or not so. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm desperately afraid I'm gonna run into this because, you know, it happens. And so I'm gonna just move that real quick. There we go. All right, so the gospel transforms us to pursue godliness. The gospel transforms us to pursue godliness. False teaching has evil impact from an evil source and is delivered by evil people. Hopefully, the weight of that sinks in. False teachers have evil impact. False teaching is from an evil source and false teaching is delivered by 
evil people. Now, I know that that is like the language of good and evil. We've kind of fallen away from it. And we kind of want to make everybody sort of right and everybody sort of wrong. And so we'll just kind of get along that way. But that's not how the Bible talks. There is evil. And and the reason I want to say it that clearly is because the false teachers that you listen to, the false teachers that pop up on your social media, the false teachers that you're singing along to in the car, they are so nice. And they are so compassionate. And they're so affirming. And they are so polished that it doesn't seem that bad. It doesn't seem that wrong. But that's what deception is, isn't it? It tricks you. It appears a certain way, a way that's acceptable to you. But its intention and its direction is not at all pure. It's not at all good. And that's what we're going to be targeting here. In the text today, we have the problem. Is it a big enough deal to talk about? We have the source. It's going to get ugly. And we have a description of false teachers and what they're really like. Who spreads this message? So the problem, the source of the message, and then the carriers of the message is what we're going to see in this first section. So look at it as he, as he jumps in. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. We'll get to it. The Spirit, the Spirit expressly says, well, where does the Holy Spirit tell us this is coming? And we don't know that we have the exact answer to that question. It could have been through Christian prophets, like in the book of Acts. There's a famine coming. Paul, you're about to be in prison. There was an operating ministry of prophets while the word of God was being written. So maybe one of them said it. Or where does the Spirit expressly, clearly tell us this? It could be that the Spirit expressly told Paul who writes inspired scripture, and that this is where he's telling us. Or it could be pointing back like we did a few weeks ago to Acts chapter 20. When I'm gone, and I am going, fierce wolves will come in and they will not spare you. They will devour you. They will twist the scriptures. But why will they twist the scriptures? Not to make you better and your life richer. They'll twist the scriptures because they want people to follow them and not Christ. And so the Spirit is telling us that in this age, the latter age, the latter times, which is the age in which we live, it is the age of the Spirit and the age of the gospel. It is the closing age of humanity. There will be no other ages of humanity. There will be this age, and then there will be eternity where our fate is settled, eternity with God or eternity apart from God. But this is the closing age. It's the last days, the latter times. And so in the latter times, right now, What's the problem? Why is this worth talking about? Why is it worth getting worked up over? Why should you care? Because some will depart from the faith. Is that a big deal? Is it a big deal for someone to apostatize? That's the word that's behind this. To turn away from a faith they once professed, away from faith in Jesus Christ. Is that a big deal? Is that an eternally big deal? Is that a deal that involves a real human being with a real soul departing from the only hope by which they must be saved into eternity separated from God because of that decision? Is that a big deal? 
So some will depart from the faith. False teachers leave the faith theologically, and then false teachers leave the faith behaviorally. Right, So to depart from the faith, they leave their doctrine, but we always do what we believe. And so if we have left the gospel in our beliefs, we will leave the gospel in our practices. And for me, it's like, goodbye. You're a false teacher who wants to destroy the lives of others. You can go your way. But that's not what the word says, is it? Some will depart from the faith, and it's not limited to false teachers. See, false teachers have followers, and they're unwitting. False teachers have followers. They don't have the foundation they need to, or to equip to deal with this. False teachers have followers who follow them. And if they are leaving Jesus, guess where people that follow them are going? They're leaving Jesus. And if they are leaving a lifestyle that aligns with the glorious gospel of Christ, then guess what their followers are doing? They're leaving a lifestyle that aligns with the gospel of Christ. They are following into destruction. And it should matter to us that somebody we know and love may latch on to a teacher because they don't know any better. Latch on to a teacher because that's what they grew up with. Latch on to a teacher who is leading them somewhere and they don't realize it. And that somewhere isn't towards Christ. It's somewhere else. There is a problem that makes this passage worth grieving over. There's a problem that makes this passage worth paying attention to. Some people will leave Jesus and leave the lifestyle of the gospel and they'll go somewhere else. But there is nowhere else to go for hope. There is nowhere else to go for salvation. There is no other name by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus Christ. Some are going to depart from the faith. Well, Where does this teaching come from? What's the source? And we can keep reading. And like, read this in your Bible, okay? Because I don't want you to think, oh, Chris, he's an old guy and he's kind of stodgy. Look, there's Chris. He's got gray and I don't. So, you know, think of that what you will. Look at the text. They will leave the faith and they will devote themselves to deceitful spirits and demonic teaching. Do you see that? That's in the Bible. Everybody say, I see that. Uh Just shake your head. You're good. All right. Chris didn't make that up. That's right there in the text. What is the source of false teaching? It is demonic. It is opposed to the work of God. Satan's sole mission in life is how can I destroy and empty and suck all vitality from the life of those made in God's image? I can't kill God but if I could destroy your life and shrivel your soul and and empty you out as a person, then I can get a little bit of joy because I've destroyed the image of God in a human. And so demonic teaching opposes God. What grid do we look at false teaching through? Or what grid do we look at all teaching through? The end of chapter three gave us the grid. Does it magnify Jesus Christ and lead to a lifestyle that's imperfectly walking with Jesus Christ, right? Jesus central, Jesus working out in our lives. That's, that's the grid we look through because there's a million counterfeits out there. And you're like, okay, I'm not gonna fall into this one. And then there's another. I'm not gonna go with the prosperity teachers and I'm not worried about health and wealth. I don't believe God does that, but 
I'm a really good legalist when it counts. Right? And if legalism doesn't get me, then indulgence will get me. And if indulgence doesn't get me, then, then this whole money thing will get me. And there's so many counterfeits. We couldn't list them all. What grid do you put up? Does it make much of Jesus Christ? And does it lead to a lifestyle that walks with Jesus, becomes like Jesus? That's the grid. And, and what's the verdict? There is good doctrine in verse 6. Magnifies Jesus, leads to the lifestyle of Jesus, and there's everything else, demonic. We don't have to get into the the peculiarities, we don't have to get into the details, we don't have to get into the thousand different variants of false teaching that are out there. There's good doctrine that magnifies Jesus, and there's demonic doctrine. It's everything else. Now why why do we need to say that? Because it comes packaged, it's deceitful spirits. Now, here's a key thing you need to know about deceptive spirits. And I'm about to give you the inside track. You ready? Lean in, nice. I'm gonna whisper for effect. Here's the thing you need to know about, about deceitful spirits. They're deceptive. I know you're expecting more, but that's all I can give you. They don't come out and say like, look, go worship the devil. That's easy. I'm not going there. They don't wear horns. That's easy. I don't follow people with horns. They deceive. It's almost biblical. Follow me. It's Bible plus me, and I have some more insights, and I have some ways of leading you. Follow me. It's deceptive. It tricks you. If it were obvious, it would be so much easier. It's not obvious. It's deceitful spirits that are demonic. They oppose the work of God. They oppose magnifying Jesus. They oppose people believing and coming to the full knowledge of the truth. They oppose that. It's spiritual in its source. It's demonic. But how does it get transmitted? How how do we learn about that? How, How is it brought to bear on our lives? Very human. Through the insincerity of liars who have seared consciences. People bring false teaching to you and invite you to it. Now, I would say there's two groups of false teachers. I don't even know the breakdown. There are false teachers who have no clue they're false teachers. Second Timothy says they go about deceiving others while being deceived. They are deceived in themselves, and so they are, they've so bought the lie that they convincingly deceive you also. And then there's no, those that know really well. It's false teaching, but it sure does pay well. It's false teaching. It sure does a lot for me, though, and I don't give a rip. Seared conscience. But the result is the same. The word there for insincerity, hypocrites. They claim a knowledge. In reality, they don't have. They claim to have the better way of doing things that they don't have. They claim to be something they're not. They're hypocrites. See, hypocrites aren't people that are like, God is holy, I'm supposed to be holy, I'm running after holiness, and I sin, and I sin, and I sin. That's Christianity. That's life. Hypocrites is somebody who acts and claims to be something that they're not. And these guys are hypocrites. There is nothing behind what they're offering you, what they're claiming. 
in order to get you to follow them. And so you think about this. <laughs> you think about this, the sincerity of liars. They are lying, they are deceived, and they're deceiving you. And you know how they deceive, right? It's tricky, it's deceptive. And you know how they do that. Let me just take a little Bible and a good understanding of what you really want, not to have to deal with your sin, but to, to be able to live with it, it'd be okay. And, you know, have Jesus at the same time without fighting your sin. I can, I can make this work. Or, I know what you really want. You want to be successful in life, don't you? You want to be reasonably healthy, don't you? I can make this religion work. Or, I mean, I know some of y'all are curmudgeons like me. And if you know that word, that means you are one. If you don't know that word, then you might be safe. If you know anything about biology, you understand people are born this way. And if they're born this way, then how cruel would it be to try to help have them fight against their very nature itself? Now, it may not be right per se, but surely because there's a weakness in them, we should accommodate it just a little bit. And if we accommodate it and accept it, and make them, then they can be good followers of Jesus and this is just an area of weakness that they have. You want to come with me in this? I can make this work. They are hypocritical liars. And they sound so compassionate while doing it, don't they? They sound nicer than me. I mean, I'm trying to smile just so you realize I'm not mad, right? I just realize people are departing the faith over this stuff in droves. I realize you could be sitting in a church a mega church of thousands hearing this stuff, and you would go. You'd believe in. They have seared consciences, and then they give a little specifics just so Timothy is equipped to deal with it. They forbid marriage. Does Paul forbid marriage? Well, it kind of sounds like it in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, right? I wish you were all single just like me, but, you know, you don't have to be. Does he forbid marriage? Well, if you were to go back a chapter, elders should be what? The husbands of one wife. That sounds like marriage is okay. The next chapter, widows should have been the wives of one husband. Sounds like marriage to me. He tells the younger widows, you know what he tells them? Go get married. Because if you don't, it's going to be really messy spiritually. Right? And so he is not forbidding marriage, but they are. But he addresses that second part. Stay away from certain foods. And I'll just say it this way. They go to Genesis 1 for their myths and fables, chapter 1. They go to Genesis for a lot of their different, or the early books of the Bible for this. And so where does Paul go to refute it? Genesis chapter 1. God created. And everything God created is good. And you know what you should do with the good things that God created, food-wise? You should feast upon them with a deep abiding gratitude and worship of God as you do it. Do you know what food is meant to do? Why don't we just have oatmeal? Right, mush on a plate. And if you eat it and love it, I'm sorry, but it's mush on a plate. Why didn't God just make oatmeal? It would provide nourishment for you. Because food is one of the rich, creative varieties God has given you. Meant to be responded to with gratitude of what he has given me to enjoy and worship to him as a good creator. And so when you start restricting foods and you start being worried about what food you eat and what you don't eat, then gratitude at the God who gave it, you've missed the point. 
False teachers have an evil impact. There's a, a church in Acts called the Bereans. Not a church, I'm sorry. They're a synagogue. They're Jewish. And Paul preaches the gospel to them, and they don't mock him like others. They search the scriptures to see if these things are true. And I want to plead with you, because people come across your social media and you watch clips. Or bands come on, maybe it's a radio, or maybe it's your, I'm sorry, it's not radio, maybe it's Spotify or, or Apple Music, because you got the subscription and you don't want the commercials. And it's such great music. And you sing to it, and it's filled your song bank up. Or maybe there's teachers you follow and you read or follow and you listen to their sermons. Open your Bible, search the scripture, and see if these things are so. Start with me. Is what Chris is saying biblically true in thrust and orientation and direction? Search the scriptures and is it so or not so? The band that is most popular to you Search the scriptures to see if it's so. Read the lyrics. Search the scripture to see if it's so. What church is behind them? What do they believe? What are they about? For the people you post the thought of the day from on Instagram, search the scripture to see if that person is so or not so. It is evil in its impact, and it is evil in its source, and it is evil when people carry it out. And it's usually carried out by very magnetic people, people you gravitate towards. People, maybe they can be in campus ministry, they can be in churches, they can be in Sunday school classes, they can be in mega, they're not all on TV, but there's such a magnetism to them that you're drawn And as you're drawn, you lose some of your critical faculties and you lose some of your your searching to see if it's so and you're just magnetized to them. But they use their magnetism to create a group for themselves. They use their magnetism to create a group maybe separate from the church. They use their magnetism to lead you somewhere, but it's not towards Jesus Christ. Jesus isn't made much of. Jesus isn't in the conversation. Jesus isn't central. Jesus is a little bit of Bible, but not a lot of Jesus, a lot of me. And you're more aligned with them than you are with Christ. And beware. Second step. There's only two points today. Aren't you excited? Sound doctrine leads from identity to the hard work of progressive sanctification. Sound doctrine leads from identity to the hard work of progressive sanctification. Now, I put the identity part in there because I want to bracket this rightly. Chapter 3, Jesus came in the flesh. Jesus died on a cross. Jesus rose from again. He was vindicated by angels. He is preached in the world, and he's believed. He makes people something by sheer grace. He makes people something by giving the righteousness he has to them through, by grace through faith. We are made something by the declared or by the finished work of Jesus declared over us through a received by faith. That's how it all starts. That's how it all is secured. I will get to heaven regardless of the life I live because I was secured by faith in Jesus forever. That is the identity. I am part of the family of God. I am a dearly loved child of God. That's the starting point. That's the ending point. That's the foundation everything gets built on. But sanctification is hard 
work. And we're going to work out the details of that. So please stay tuned long enough to hear this. Look at it. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. Now, why does that statement need to be there? What are these things? If you refute false teachings, if you put Jesus magnified, Jesus magnified, Jesus magnified, Jesus magnified, he's got to be named everywhere before people, you're a good servant. Why would Timothy need to hear that? Because everybody else is older, with more followers, and more respect from within the church that he's an outsider in. Can you imagine? Maybe this young punk is the guy that's wrong, not these old guys with all the people following him. Here's the analogy I think. The people that I would name to you as false teachers, and I'm not going to name people today, the people I would name to you as false teachers, they usually have really big churches. And they usually have massive social media followers. And they usually have invites to all the conferences that people go to. And so if you have got the record deal with millions of listens, and if you have got the mega church with thousands of people in it, and if you've got the mega influence of millions of followers on Instagram, Chris Fowler is some rube in South Georgia. What makes me think I'm right? That's audacious to think I'm right in South Georgia with our handful of people versus that. And if it was about us, they'd be right. Better speakers, better production, better communication, better platforms. But if it's about the centrality of Jesus Christ, then it isn't about me. Then I can align myself with Jesus and be right even if the whole world disagrees with it. You're a good servant if you put Jesus in front of people. Right? You're not a good servant because you're to be made much of. You're a good servant because you put Jesus in front of people. And then look at it as he goes in. There's two pathways of growth that get mentioned in the text. Do you see them? Train yourself for godliness. Don't worry about these irreverent or these, these irrelevant myths, this babble that people are saying. Forget about that stuff. Train yourself for godliness. And then look at the opposite. Bodily training, it does some stuff that's good. Now, I've always read this as the sports verse. Have you? Oh, that means if you work out and you exercise, it helps you a little bit. But godliness, that's really just more important. That's all we're saying. And so, you know, we should do, a, we should do an athlete's devotion on this one. I don't believe after studying it, that's at all what the text is saying. There is one path to growth called asceticism rigorously discipline the body with its desires. You war against your body and you war against your body's desires. That's bodily training, right? You discipline and restrain your body. And and when you have lust, you take a cold shower. And when you're angry, you count to 10. And when you're thinking wrongly, you go see Dr. Phil and he rewires your thinking and better thinking will result in better living. And then if you'll just change your behavior, behavior modification, and you'll keep the disciplines, everything will be good, right? And so it is an effort of bodily discipline to spiritual habits and to, to fighting the, the, the desires and lusts of your heart and, and, and to growing like it's effort and will and determination to, to, to discipline your body. And you know what that will produce? It'll produce some good. Like you won't blow it as much as you would otherwise. 
There's some profit to that. You'll be a more disciplined person. There's some profit to that. And you'll be a moral person if you do that. But you will not be a transformed person if you do that. Only training, same word, to godliness can transform you from the inside out. Training your body and your passions can only do so much to make you moral. But it cannot transform you. It cannot transform you. It cannot make you godly. So what is the other way of growth? Train yourself for godliness. I hate to tell you this because we're grace people. It is, we are saved by grace. We are kept by grace. We are secured by grace. We'll enter heaven by grace. We'll be with God forever and eternity by grace. But there is some stinking hard work that you must put into the Christian life to be a godly transformed person. Do you see that in the text? Right? Train yourself, and we're going to get to another verse in a second. Train yourself for godliness. And so if you have somebody well-intentioned and magnetic, and they're like, hey, come over here. Don't worry about that sin too much. Grace. Does that sound like disciplining yourself for godliness? There's a hard work that goes into progressive sanctification. There's some hard work into not going through progressive sanctification. It's all hard. But one produces a transformed life useful to the master and one produces a moral person that that feels better because they're continually looking down at someone else who doesn't have it together as them. And they're burnt out and they're exhausted because they can't measure up. They can't be disciplined enough. your, Your desires still come back and so you're just burnt out and worn out. Because you're waging a war for growth in your own power against your own body. You're not waging a war for growth in Christ. Let me give you a framework to think through. Colossians chapter 2. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and not holding fast to the head who is Christ. Now, it may have the appearance of godliness, but it has zero power against the indulgence of the flesh. So what does training yourself for godliness look like? And how is it different than asceticism? Bodily discipline. Godliness clings to Jesus Christ, cultivates affection for Jesus Christ. Its disciplined habits are disciplined to look at Jesus when I feel like it and when I don't. Love, cultivate love for Jesus when I feel like it and when I don't. It's rigorous self-discipline because I'm holding on to the one I love and if I don't, if I don't pursue that, then it, it love diminishes so quickly and I fall in love with the things of the world so quickly. It's abiding in Christ and when I abide in Christ, it empowers powers a lifestyle of faith. How do we know that this is true? Think about Paul's own testimony. Now, Paul's a pretty good guy, right? Everybody agree? Paul's good? Okay. Paul says it this way. By grace, I am what I am. And I worked circles around all the other apostles. I worked harder than anybody. Yet it wasn't me. It was grace working in me. Now, you figure that out, and you've got this passage nailed. 
I am made by grace. I am in love with Jesus by grace. I am secured by grace. And it throws me in a lifestyle of working and striving and toiling. Not using a self-righteous, fleshly substitute of almost godliness that's moral. But all in. Like God in relationship to God. That's, that's what I want to be changed into. I want to be like Jesus And so hold fast to the head, abide in Christ, and that produces a godly effort for transformation that God's committed to. Philippians 2. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Get to work. By the way, God's working in you to will and to work according to his good pleasure. God's operating and moving within your heart to create this desire to go. And now look at the last part. This is a trustworthy staying. Third time he said that, meaning it's important, pay attention to. Well, what should we pay attention to? Look at this. For to this end we toil. Paul, apostle of grace, toil and strive. Why? Because we have our hope set on the living God. Toil means to expend energy to the point of exhaustion. You should not be well rested with plenty of me time when you leave this life and go to heaven. You should be flat, worn out with everything left on the field when you die and you go to heaven. All your work's done. You will not have another conversation. You will not help another soul. You will not offer the gospel to another human being. You will not serve another person when this life ends. Leave it here. That's what he's saying. Toil. But what else is he saying? Godliness takes effort. Do you see that? Godliness takes effort. So how do we keep it from being legalistic? How do we keep it from being self-righteous, fleshly effort? We go back to chapter 3. Jesus lived and he died and he was vindicated through resurrection. We abide in Christ. We are declared God's family. He gave us his righteousness. That's everything. We have a Holy Spirit in us pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus, pointing to Jesus. Here is his glory. Here is his glory. Here is his glory. See it. Run after it. Love it. Cling to it. That's on one side. But look at the text. Is it saying work really hard, just work really hard to be godly instead of moral? No. It's saying strive and toil. But does it end there? No. Look at the last line. Because we have our hope set on the living God. Why would I leave it all in the field? Why would I wear myself out? Why wouldn't I take some extra breaks? Why wouldn't I focus on me and get some good me time? Because eternity's coming and it's beautiful and it's glorious and it has not entered into the heart of man what that's going to be like because it's so amazing that we can't comprehend it. And there is a world of billions of people who are headed for the exact opposite. And I want to focus on me, though. There's people all around me who need caring for and strengthening and discipling to run their race with endurance. I have a better hope ahead that I'm running towards, and so I run all the faster to get there. So I look back, and I'm rooted in Jesus Christ, and I look forward, and there's an eternal hope in Jesus Christ. So what do I do now? Expend godly energy by the energy given by God, if you can make that work out. Godly energy because of the energy given by God to pursue godliness. 
to be transformed by beholding Jesus from one degree of glory to the next. That's what we do. That's what we do. And so, sound doctrine starts with your identity. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. And then it puts in the godly effort, gripping on Jesus, the godly effort with a godly hope of progressive sanctification. Will flesh efforts help you a little bit? Yeah. If you got to go spend an hour a week with Dr. Phil, would he help you? I bet he would just a little bit. He could help you think a little better about stuff, and he'd help you behave a different way about some stuff. If you exercise and have a good diet, is that helpful? Yeah, I should do it. I'll feel better. I'll have better energy. Is it profitable? Yes. A little bit. But will it transform your life? No, none of it will. Godliness has a value right here, right now, in your life, in your relationships, in your marriage, in every person you're part of. And godliness has a value forever and forever and forever. Which growth will you choose? It's easier to choose bodily discipline. It's easier to choose some rules you want to keep. It's easier to choose a religion that doesn't make many demands on you. It's easier to choose a magnetic friend who's whispering an almost Bible to you. It's easier to do that. But there's no eternal value. There's no difference-making value and transformation from that stuff. A few practical things. Here we go. Should we take minor false teachings majorly serious? Should we take minor false teachings majorly serious? Why or why not? I want you to think through, and I want you to think through in a group or a micro group, is this that big a deal or not? What if it's just a little bit off? Deception is is deceptive because it's deceptive. It's tricky. It's not obvious. Should we take it seriously? Second, how can we expose ourselves to gospel truth more? And then how can we uh, take gospel truth and place it in other believers' lives more? How can you have an intake of what is true and right and good? How can you take an intake of magnifying Jesus into your life more and more so that you know anything that's a little off, that doesn't magnify Jesus more in my heart, it pops right in. And I know I'm not going there. Uh Uh-uh. That does not give me more Jesus. I don't want it. So how can we expose that? And then how can I look to the people next to me, the people I'm in community with, the people I'm in Sunday school with, the people I'm in microgroup with or campus ministry with, and how can I make sure the truth is put before them, winsomely beautiful, Jesus is better truth before them so that they can't get pulled away either. And then the last one, where can you see flesh efforts taking over grace efforts in your growth process? Where do you see you default to flesh efforts and you default to what you've always done and you default to having some good rules around things? But it's not from a place of relationship. It's not from a place of connection to Jesus. It's just some good rules. Where do you see yourself slipping back and forth? Identify those. Because our goal is to take Jesus and put him in every one of those places to replace our fleshly effort with Jesus, 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 Jesus. So where can you see that? And then have a good discussion in your group. Like, how can we tell? Because these two things sound similar, right? Train yourself 
in your body to do good stuff. Train yourself to do godly stuff. Like this, this sounds like it's got some good overlap. How do I know when I'm in one category or the other? That would be a great conversation for you to have as you, um, as you get into your groups and as you spend some time with that. Good doctrine, the gospel of Jesus Christ, will launch you into pursuit of transformation and godliness. And if what you're believing and what you're following is not doing that, then it's a reason to ask questions about it. It's a reason to look deeper at it. It's a reason to search the scriptures to see if these things be so. Let's pray. So, Father, in the name of Jesus, I I just ask that these words would fall on my own heart and on our hearts, not in ways that are just harsh and off-putting, but in ways that are, 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 are beautiful 